Welcome to the Book Supplied Podcast, presented by WSL Leadership. In this podcast, we talk about an awesome book and how to apply it to your work, sport, or life. I'm your host, Iggy Perillo. Thanks for joining me. On this episode, we are talking about the book Atlas of the Heart, Mapping Meaningful Connection and the Language of Human Experience by Brene Brown. And I'm speaking with my very special guest, Joe Linden, Josephine Linden. I should have asked. You would like Joe, Josephine. You're very Joe special. Joe is fantastic. Yes, that's Great. the the part that matters is that I'm your very special guest. Yeah, it's extremely friend. special guest. Yes. <laughs> Joe, can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yeah you? Yeah, my name's Joe, as we've established. Um, yeah, I was telling you earlier that the the uh, introduction of myself keeps ebbing and flowing and changing over time um, because turns out as a human, I keep ebbing and flowing and changing over time. Um, so the short version is I'm a human who's fascinated by what it means to be human. And I have kind of stumbled in my life's work upon working in that realm. Exactly. Right. Um, so working with groups of people, working with organizations, working with individuals, and really just exploring kind of the terrain of what it means to be human. So understanding our, our brains better, our nervous systems better, um, kind of the territory of, of human needs um, so that we can just show up for ourselves and each other in, in more skillful and loving ways. Oh, good intro. Good job. I can tell that you've been thinking about that. And <laughs> I'm always I, thinking about it. It resonates with me too. I feel like I'm always like, oh, here's what I do right now. Here's mm-hmm. what I do at the moment. Here's another articulation. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. And I think, I feel like we both read this book at some point and then realized we'd both read it. We're like, oh my gosh, you've read that too. Or mm-hmm. I'm curious how you came across this book. I feel like I don't remember who told me to read this book or I found it out there in the ether, but do you remember how you came across yeah. this book? I mean, I, I came across it because I am obsessed with Brene Brown and literally everything <laughs> that she does. I, I first encountered her work, I think, and it was her first or yeah, not her first book, but but the first one that kind of was out in, in the world, um, Gifts of Imperfection. And I first read it in, I think, 2010. And I was just struck. It was exactly what I needed at the time as a, you know, lifelong recovering perfectionist. And I was I was really struck by her vulnerability and her willingness to kind of walk the talk. Um, I I think that that was pretty innovative at the time. And even still for somebody who's in this role of researcher and, you know, authority or expert on a topic to, you know, be willing to to share in such a vulnerable and open way and to say like, these are the ways that this lands for me and here's my humanity. Um, And, you know, as we may talk about one of the elements of, of compassion is really that common humanity and recognizing that that we're all really struggling with a lot of the same things, like different iterations, different versions of, of the same story. Um, and so I've always been um, kind of obsessed with emotions, partly because I feel them very deeply as a, as a sensitive human being. Um, and part of my work has, has been working with teenagers and helping them to navigate their big feels because that's the, the time of life when we feel them most strongly and are most you know, sideswiped by them because it's our first time. Um, and just really, you know, in the work that I've done to understand myself better. And so I was stoked when I saw that she uh, stoked is not an emotion that she explores in this book, but an important Should one. Nonetheless. Be. Should be. So good. Um, I, yeah, just thrilled that she was doing this research and and um, put it all into this 
this book. So yeah, I, I um, really ate it up. <laughs> That's awesome. Every single page. I love it. I'm a nerd about all the things. I feel like uh, similarly, I think I've read, I've definitely read previous books. I've done previous episodes actually about Dare to Lead and um, mm-hmm. other Brene Brown books on this show. And so I'm sure it's just somewhere in like the the media storm that is Brene Brown. I'm like, oh, she has a new book. Exactly. Great. And it is I very much it. a coffee table book. Like it's heavy, yes. it's thick, it's really beautifully printed. It's There's a lot of drawings and illustrations. Like it is designed to be an atlas in the sense of, to me, atlas always means like, oh, picture maps, right? Yeah. You know, like maps, exactly. A, map, a picture book of maps. The territory. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, she addresses that a little bit. And I think the format of the physical book, like it's heavy. Like the paper is just mm-hmm. really thick. I got it from the library. I'm like, this is heavier mm-hmm. than it looks like it is thick, heavy paper in there and pretty and printed in color. And yeah, absolutely. it is very much yeah. the the vibe of an Atlas out yeah. there. And she I sort was of hesitant. Was I was that? hesitant to, I was just hesitant to, to just because of the, the quality of it to get in there and mark Like I usually really love to like underline and highlight and notes in the margin. And because it's such a nice book, I was really hesitant to do that. And then I was like, that's, it's on, I'm, I can't not because it's just so rich. <laughs> yeah. So and I was yeah. just like, it's heavy to carry home from the library. Like I guess yeah. different, different <laughs> reaction to the physical nature mm-hmm. of this book. But she sort of divides the book into, in my mind, there's sort of two sections, sort of this intro piece where she's explaining mm-hmm. how the book operates. And then the second <clears throat> half, third, two thirds, like bigger part of the book, I think, is actually her going through the emotions and describing what they like, what they mean and how they operate. And so, I, I mean, I liked both sections. And I thought the first part, though, was really interesting because she's she kind of recur- revisits some themes that she talks about in other um, other work that she's done. And talks about vulnerability, which was her the mm-hmm. theme of her TED talk that totally. I think in so many mm-hmm. ways just launched her into the stratosphere. And talks about just sort of different ways that we approach language and we approach the idea of emotions. And I'm wondering if there's anything mm-hmm. from that first part that caught your eye or, yeah, that sticks with you. Yeah, I mean, I think she does a really good job in the beginning section of just mapping out why it's important, why we need an atlas of emotions, why a map is helpful. And I, I agree. I really love that analogy or that metaphor, that image, um, because a map is not like when we're looking at a map, it's very different from when we're on the ground in the terrain that we're exploring. Right. And it doesn't give us a a felt sense of it, but it helps us to explore and to navigate, um, you know, what can be kind of tricky or terrifying or, you know, overwhelming. And so I think that, you know, she really talks about how, we use language as a way to make sense of, of our experience. Right. And um, we use it as a way to communicate with other people. Right. And so emotions are really, what is, what's the the subtitle? Um, the language of human experience. I love that. Right. Like this is the language of human experience. It's, it's kind of how we orient through the world. Um, and when we don't have words to describe that then then we're limited in how much we can connect with other people, how much we can, you know, be aware of what it is that we're experiencing um, and how we know kind of like what to do next. You know, I oftentimes think about emotions as like the indicator light on your dashboard, right? And they're, you know, giving you information and telling you really important um, things about what's going on internally, right? And it's, you know, we live in a culture where, a lot of times we're really just encouraged to like take a piece of tape and stick it over that sticker <laughs> and just pretend that it's not right. But like my mm-hmm. check engine light is on. That's, that's giving me an indicator that there's something 
uh, that I need to explore. Maybe it's not that there's something wrong necessarily, Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. but there's, there's so many reasons why we need language around our emotional experience um, really in order to be like fully alive and fully human. And we do ourselves a disservice when, when we don't have those words. Absolutely. Uh, Earlier on, she described, says something along the lines that human emotions are layers of biology, biography, uh, behavior and backstory that our emotions are not just like, I think there's some people that say like, well, emotions are just mm-hmm. like chemical reactions in the body or emotions are just, you know, your biology responding or like emotions are just like the story of how you feel of something. But she says they're all of those things together. Like that our human mm-hmm. emotions are really multifaceted in that way mm-hmm. that they are, our behavior is, you know, a piece of our emotions. And so is our backstory. Absolutely. Like everything else is all connected. And so emotions are not, she's not, describing emotions as a chemical state, which I think is this mm-hmm. very sort of reductive uh, neuroscientific approach at times. Like, oh, we can mm-hmm. look at this part of your brain firing for this emotion. Exactly. You're like, yeah, yep. that's not a thing. Like, that's not it's how not it It's not that simple. Mm-hmm. Will you say those four Bs again? I feel like those are worth uh, repeating. <laughs> I will. I will say them. I <laughs> took a note and I will read it better because yeah. my hearing so good. Uh, emotions are layers of biology, biography, behavior, and backstory. Biology, biography, behavior, and backstory. Yeah, I think that nails it. I also appreciate the alliteration. Yeah, she is a great writer, by the way. She's a very fun writer in there. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of good stuff. Well, Um, those those help us to to remember things, right? And to kind of like put the pieces together. I think that 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 is really interesting. I've been, um, you know, really fascinated recently just about like the biology of our nervous systems and the ways that you know our nervous systems are kind of constantly scanning our environments and responding to threat or perceived threat or, you know, joy or perceived joy. And um, I think it's really interesting to think about how those other, all all of those things kind of play together and work together, right? Because really like our emotions are a function of our nervous system, but we also, I mean, they influence our behaviors. They're influenced by our behaviors. They, we experience them completely differently depending on our our biography, right? What has happened to us, mm-hmm, the experiences mm-hmm. that we've had, right? Like your experience of anger and my experience of anger are completely different from the other seven plus almost 8 billion humans in the world, right? And so it's like, even when we have the language to talk about emotions, we're still just kind of like pointing, pointing at a general kind of lived experience, yeah, this-ish. right? kind of thing. Ish, exactly. Exactly. She does say language has the power to define our experiences. Mm-hmm. And I think this is what you were saying before, that without putting words to some of the things we're experiencing, really at the emotional level, we don't quite have a, the most clear grasp of what's actually happening. Like yeah. we're not really clear on things in some ways until we can label them with words that are pretty precise, pretty specific. Mm-hmm. And that then defines the experiences that we actually have because yes. we are not constrained by the language, but we are like, we can explain and interact with the language in a way that's different than interacting with raw experience. Yeah. Well, and it's bi-directional too. I think that's something that we don't necessarily recognize or understand like the nuance of, right. That when, when I have an emotional experience and then I have language for it, it's not like I'm, I'm, you know, looking at a, a flower and saying like, that is this particular type of flower, right? Like me and the flower are having different experiences of the world, right? But when I'm having that experience and I say like, oh, I am experiencing disappointment right now, it actually, because of what has has to happen in my brain and my body to come to that word and to say it out loud, it actually shifts the relationship that I have with that emotion, right? It's not this kind of like objective 
external thing floating around in my body. Like it, it is me in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. And when I have the words to explain that or to understand it, it then shifts the relationship that I have about it. I mean, it's not dissimilar to like if you and I are having a conversation and you know, you're sharing things about yourself or helping me to understand you better, right? The the my understanding of you is going to shift our relationship. Um, and so I just I think that it's so fascinating to think about our emotions as something that we're kind of constantly in this relationship with. And we can have either an antagonistic relationship with those emotions or with our emotional experience, or we can have you know, a, a more compassionate relationship, which doesn't always necessarily mean, it, mean it's easy, right? Um, but really kind of the mm, the orientation that I have mm-hmm. towards those emotions really affects the experience that I have. Absolutely. And I think uh, she does a lot in this book about being precise about language. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to read another quote from the book that she quotes Dr. Harriet Lerner from The Dance of Fear, so this is Brene Brown quoting Dr. Harriet mm-hmm. Lerner. It is not the fear that stops you from doing the brave and true thing in your daily life. Rather, the problem is avoidance. You want to feel comfortable, so you avoid doing or saying the thing that will evoke fear and other difficult emotions. Avoidance will make you feel less vulnerable in the short run, but it will never make you less afraid. Yeah. So I good. Think I, put, I think I put oof in the emergence next yeah. to that one. I was like, don't call me out like that, Harriet. Well, and it's and I think this speaks to Brene's mission in this whole book to be like, well, I'm just afraid. I'm just afraid. She's like, no, you're not afraid. You're avoidant right now. And if we can separate those things out, being afraid from being avoidant, uh, one of again, yeah, one of Brene Brown's big um, arching themes through many of her works is this idea about vulnerable, vulnerability yeah. and fear are themes that come up a lot. And courage, like these sort of pieces mm-hmm. and how they act and interact, are really, um, yeah, just present in a lot of her work. And so we we fall into it seems like she's saying we fall in this trap of fear, like, oh, I'm just afraid. I can't do it. Like, yeah. no, you're just avoidant. And I see this in, in my work all the time when people need to have a yeah. tough conversation, but they're like, oh, I don't know. It might go badly. Yeah. Might, you, you know, like they avoid. Yeah. Well, and it's both, right? I mean, we avoid because we feel fear, right? I don't know if, if Harriet would agree with me, but I think that like vulnerability kind of has like it's in, it's close to the fear family or the fear experience. Right. And so it's like, okay, well, if I'm afraid of something, I'm perceiving something as being, you know, it's either a threat or I'm not going to be able to do it, or there's a story that we're creating about the situation. And so it's like, well, I can run toward that thing and try to fight or, you know, fight it, or I can run away from it. Right. It's like, that's scary. And so I'm, I'm avoiding, but I think that that the key with that is, is the vulnerability, right? Like if I, if I have the ability to stay with that vulnerability, um, then how does that change my relationship with fear and all of those things in my life that I'm avoiding because I'm having that experience of, of fear, right? Absolutely. And vulnerability, I mean, she says specifically, it's not weakness. It's our greatest uh, measure Oof, of yeah. courage, right? Mm-hmm. So to in order to sit in vulnerability, you're actually engaging in courage. Like it's the activate, mm-hmm. like, I don't think she quite says it like this, but like, actualized courage is vulnerability. Like these are the same thing and they, they are not, they don't operate separately. And she talks in many of her other talks about approaching people who are seen as very courageous. And she's like, Oh, how did you feel? And they're like, Oh, I felt so vulnerable. Oh, I was really nervous. I was really afraid. I was really, you know, like these are not, not even two sides of the same coin. They are the same side of the same same thing. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Exactly. 
Yeah. I mean, and I really appreciate her expanded definition of vulnerability, right? The uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. I think that oftentimes just kind of colloquially and, and culturally, when we talk about vulnerability, there's an assumption that it's just, you know, spilling my guts and talking about all of the things. And, you know, like I've spent a lot of time with teenagers and I can tell you that like just effusively sharing and oversharing all of the things, um, isn't necessarily a measure of vulnerability. I know for myself personally, you know, I have, I I don't want to say always, but for a long time, like I've felt pretty comfortable with sharing like my internal experience and talking about my emotions and hard things. Um, But for a long time, if you had asked me to like do something silly or playful in a group of people, I would just, I would freeze, right? Like that felt so much more vulnerable to me than this emotional exposure and sharing my emotions. Right. And so again, there's the like biography and the, and the backstory. I'm sure there's all kinds of things that we could get into about that. Right. But, but there's some, there's some um, risk in playfulness or silliness, right. There's uncertainty in terms of how, how are people around me going to react or respond mm-hmm. when I act this way, when I show up as my kind of silly, authentic, weird self, are they going to judge me? Are they going to, you know, react in a way that is isolating or negative? And so I, I think that that expanded definition of vulnerability, vulnerability can be so helpful. Again, it expands our language and our understanding of this really human emotional state so that we're not driven by that vulnerability towards mm-hmm. things like avoidance or blame or, you know, all sure. of the other things that she talks about. This is another very funny part to me where she talked about like, no regrets, and like hmm. she says, no regrets doesn't mean living with courage. So if courage and vulnerability are the same, that doesn't mean no regrets. No regrets, it means living without reflection. Yeah. <laughs> Live without regret is to believe that we have nothing to learn, no amends to make, and no opportunity to be braver in our with our lives. Like, yeah, that idea of like, no regrets. <laughs> was, uh, yep. She's like, yeah, that's you. You're not cool. <laughs> like You're just like basically steamrolling people around you. And, mm-hmm. and living in a way with nothing to learn, no amends to make, you know, like this, mm-hmm. like, oh, yeah, no regrets is kind of fundamentally selfish sounding, like, you know, in her conceptualization, I think, which is, I thought, right. very funny. Yeah, because if I, you know, if you and I have a an interaction, and I say something hurtful, and, you know, like, you come away with that, like, I, I of course, I regret that. I regret <laughs> having, having said that, right? Um, and I, th- I think that, you know, there's an element when people are saying, like, no regrets. It always just makes me think of the tattoo that's like no regrets, like yeah. the misspelled. No, yeah, no, <laughs> no, no regrets. No regrets. Okay. Um, yeah, but like I, I think there is that kind of that lack of reflection. But I, I think that sometimes when we're saying that, or when people are saying that, there is a kind of a desire toward like acceptance, or like, well, this is my life. These are the choices that I've made. I need to keep moving forward despite them, right? Like sometimes those regrets can keep us stuck mm-hmm. or mired. And I think maybe there's a sense, again, if we're talking about the nuances of language, mm-hmm. when someone's saying no regrets, maybe there's a sense of, well, I don't, I don't want to get stuck in my my guilt or my shame. Yeah. Yeah. About or like those the ruminating cycles about those things. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. For yeah. Sure. And so I think those are important distinctions between those different experiences. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's like this book makes us very attentive to the language and like how it can be taken and like it context, all these different things. Love it. Uh, another great thing she that I like she said was that acknowledging uncertainty is a function of grounded confidence and feels like humility to me. So uncertainty, like to acknowledge uncertainty is grounded confidence and humility. Mm-hmm. Like 
And so basically confidence isn't saying I have all the answers. Constant confidence, to, mm. grounded confidence to her means I can say that I can acknowledge that there's uncertainty in the world and like mm. in anything. And that is closer to humility for her, which I uh, mm. appreciated a lot, I think, because I think there mm. is a, there's still, even though we, we like to say, you know, it's okay not to know, it's okay to be curious, yeah. it's okay to, you know, mm-hmm. there are definitely times and places and contexts, all these different things where you're like, I'm not going to ask a question. I'm not going to be, I'm going to pretend like I'm certain here. Oh, I need to put on a yeah. good face. I need to like portray this sense of confidence that is no, like from a, coming in from a place of knowing and like everything's going to be fine and blah, blah, blah. Like mm, acknowledging uncertainty is a little more realistic and more, mm-hmm. as you would say, grounded. Yeah. Which I, yeah. I like that idea of grounded confidence versus maybe like an air, like a mask of confidence, which I think mm-hmm. we see a lot, obviously. And we put okay. on a lot for many different reasons. Yeah. It's interesting. It makes me just think about like, where does that come from? Um, and it's interesting that she uses humility in that definition or in, in that description, because I think for me personally, that grounded confidence has come, you know, over years and years of having been faced with uncertainty and, you know, something happens and I doubt my ability to respond to it. And then it happens. And it's like, Oh, I got through that. I got through that. And then, so I have these data points again, biography, right. I have these data points that have shown me like, okay, I can keep showing up to this thing. And it is a measure of humility, right? Because it's not about like, well, I've, I've got this, I can do anything and I'm totally in control, right? It's it's a way of kind of being in relationship with uncertainty that knows that I'm not in control, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, but there's mm-hmm. there's kind of a, a deeper trust in myself because of my lived experience. And I would say just for myself, a deeper trust kind of in the world or in other people. Like there's a lot of evidence that shows that, you know, our stories about the world that often come from our early experiences and the way that that's written into our nervous systems. Like if I have a a story about the world as being like a relatively safe and friendly place, I'm going to elicit those types of experiences from other people, right? And it gets complicated and it's very different from, you know, a lot of the the rhetoric around like manifestation and, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm, all of that. Man, um, bring it, just but, call it into your life, vibrate with it. Yeah, right. I mean, it's it's a yes and, right? Like mm-hmm. it's it's not it's not that simple. Mm-hmm. It's not as simple as like it's just like this or it's not like that at all, right? Um again, like what you were saying about emotions just being, you know our biology and and synapses firing in the brain, right? Like I I think, I believe that there's a lot underneath the surface that we don't necessarily see or know. And there's a lot of science that shows that, you know, the way that we interact with the world influences the way that the world interacts with us, right? And so when I have this orientation of grounded confidence, when those uncertain things, you know, show up, my ability to to handle them um, kind of shifts and changes. For sure. For sure. Were there other pieces of the the front section or I guess any of it that uh, other things that were interesting to you as you were reading through here? I mean, I guess the front section or the definitions. I think some of the definitions are very fun that she gets into. Uh, I mean, I feel like we're getting into some of that middle part of the book just with the the definitions. Um, I I mean, I really appreciated, you know, again, one of the things I love about Bernie Brown is her storytelling and, you know, she identifies as, as a researcher storyteller, Mm -hmm. which I think is, is fantastic. And also a little bit provocative um, in the context of academia. Right. 
but she, you know, she shares a little bit about her own experience as a young person and, and her, you know, she calls them like her superpowers, her ability to read other people and just kind of know what needs to happen in any given situation, basically in order to stay safe. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I think that that's one of the interesting pieces about, you know, the power of emotions and the importance of emotions is that we as social beings, like our safety really does depend oftentimes on the emotional states of others, especially when we're young. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. And, um, and what we're taught about that as children or, you know, the lessons that we learn about how to deal with emotions or that type of thing really kind of influence, um, us for the rest of our lives. Right. So I just, yeah, I really appreciated that. I felt like that was a, a layer of vulnerability that I haven't necessarily seen. She tells a lot of like funny stories, um, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. you know, that, that do have an air of vulnerability, but this, that felt like, um, a little bit of a deeper kind of glimpse into mm-hmm. her psyche and maybe like where her desire to do this work came from. Right. Absolutely. And I, and I think it's funny that you mentioned that she's a researcher storyteller. That's like what her, mm-hmm. she has like a little logo on some of her stuff now. It says researcher storyteller, which is super great. And it is, yeah, provocative is a good word for it in the world of academia where you, I think she also talked uh, somewhere about her professor being like, if, if you can't measure it, it doesn't exist. Exactly. Like that whole vibe. Mm-hmm. And she's like, well, great. I'm going to like measure these things then. Figure out and, how to measure it. Yeah. yeah. She's like, I'm going to go measure some emotions. I'm going to basically get out there and measure and quant not necessarily quantify, but qualify both. Like, what do we mean by this thing? How do we, how do we know we have this emotion versus that emotion versus this emotion? And so mm-hmm. she basically spends a bunch of this chunk of this book engaging in that, that research, like she did research. So it's not just like, I'm just going to think about how I feel about these things and write it all down. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you, in the, I think the back like chunk of the book is like, here's my research methodology. I don't know if it was mm-hmm. true in this one, but in her other book, she's like, Here's how I did the research. Here's like sort of like the academic, um, yeah, side of things. So this so wasn't just mm-hmm. stuff that she made up based on how she felt and talking to two friends. You know that it, this was her surveying. It sounded like thousands of people who got surveyed through yeah. um, through this work in different ways in terms of how they regard emotions and how they describe them. And I think it was interesting because they, uh, yeah she gets into some really good nuances around like how things are different, which in some ways you're like, Oh, that's so important. That's so useful. In other ways you're like, ah, whatever. Okay. That's fine. I'll say envy versus jealousy in the future. Okay. Mm -hmm. You know, like, (laughs) but I found in my work when I, I work with folks and I want them to be able to articulate how they feel because then they can move forward with like, well, cool. If this is how I feel, then this is how I want to react and do things based on how I'm acting. Like emotional intelligence, part of it is understanding your emotions is a really part of that. So you, you understand the influences and can position yourself and set yourself up to work well with your emotional state. And uh, recently I was speaking at a conference. And I was like, oh yeah, if you really want to know, like I pull out like the feelings wheel that has like, you know, the different uh-huh. feelings radiating out, which is a great little tool to like n- give words to things. But then you're like, but what does this mean? Like, what does this uh-huh. word mean? I'm like, oh yeah, there's this other great book by Brene Brown ca- uh, called Alice of the Heart, where you can get into like what these words mean and how they, how people see them and how people, yeah, basically how people describe and show and interact with these emotional, these words that mean emotions. Because I think uh-huh. like you were saying at the beginning, if we both say, you know, compassion, we're like, well, here's what I think it means. Here's what you think it means. Here's what Brene Brown thinks it means. You know, like, great. Totally. Like we have sort of like another 
perspective that's not just limited by my own personal experience. It's limited or your personal experience is like, oh, here's research. Here's what a lot mm-hmm. of people say. Here's like a bigger, a wider perspective that she right. like, condenses down for us. Exactly. And what I love about her research is she does grounded theory and that, and she talks a lot about how, you know, if it doesn't come from people's lived experience, I'm not interested in it. Right. Because yes, you and I might have a different experience of that. And, you know, when you interview enough people and start to hear those themes, right? That's where her definitions emerge from. They don't, it's not, you know, over here in the ivory towers of academia, we're deciding what empathy is and we're deciding what compassion is, right? I think academia is is a new phenomenon in human reality, right? Mm. Words for emotions are not a new phenomenon, right? They, they have emerged <laughs> from our lived experience of being biological, social, spiritual, relational beings, right? And so I love that, you know, the way that she approaches it, the role of academia is not to tell us the answers, which is, you know, all of the trappings of white supremacy and patriarchy and, you know, capitalism that that equates to, right? She's saying that, no, we're we're starting with the lived experience of human beings. And we've been talking about these things for millennia. So how can we use the resources of academia to better understand them? Right. So that we can show up with even more um, skill yeah, in our lives. Right. Basically, it's like a clarifying versus a labeling activity. So like yes, she's like I distilling and clarifying versus trying to just slap a label on something that like, oh, we see a lot of this. Great. Here's here's my word for it. You're like, mm, yeah, here's, here's and, and I think, people's word for it. Exactly. And I think that we as humans are constantly seeking words to better describe the nuances of our experience, right? Like that's why we're drawn to to poetry and to good literature and to song lyrics that we like, you know, write down on a piece of paper and put up on our bathroom mirror, right? Because like words reflect back to us who we are in a lot of ways. They help remind us of who we want to be and they describe our experience. And there's, so there's something, again, relation, I keep coming back to that word relational um, in our our experience of words, right? And I mean, I'm a total word nerd and I'm constantly like, you know, definitions and etymology and, you know, all of those things are are fascinating. And I think, again, there's something really innate in us that um, that wants to understand ourselves and others better. And I think that there's kind of this like evolutionary pull towards, you know, when we have a deeper and more accurate understanding, then it, it shifts the way that we're, kind of thinking about ourselves and other people. And I think that's important, especially in the world that we're in right now. Absolutely. I think fundamentally it helps us connect better, like to have mm-hmm. better, more clear, more nuanced, whatever it is, like words that matter in a way that are, that are build relationship and build connection. I think that's to me, one of the cool outcomes of this book, like the goal isn't that you have like, a dictionary definition of 20 more words. The goal from this book totally. is that you can connect better with yourself and other people. I think that's what I'm Absolutely. taking away. The application of the book is how to be thoughtful about how we're using words specifically around our emotions, like understanding our mm-hmm. emotional state, then using that and applying that to how we act and interact with others. Well, yeah. And I'm curious to hear from you if there are uh, ways that you use this book or the ideas from this book in the work that you do, or if it has oh, had any influence on the, your work. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I, like I said before, I've done a lot of work with, um, with teenagers, with young people. And, you know, I was for a while, I was teaching 
at an alternative high school and actually doing social emotional learning in the classroom. And so, you know, we would every day we would have emotion words. I had them on little cards and, you know, that would be our check-in every day. Right. And um, the invitation was to grab a card that corresponds to the, it's the closest to how you're feeling right now. Right. Like maybe it's not exact, but it's the closest to how you're feeling right now. And just that experience for them of, you know, looking at those words every day and picking one, even if, you know, sometimes there was always the kid who like every day just picked up tired, which arguably is a physical state, maybe not an emotion, but there's some, there's some emotional vibes there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And, you know, but, but hearing each other share, this is how I'm feeling. And, And just that moment of introspection that maybe we don't even register as being a thing. It's just like, oh, how am I feeling? I'm feeling anxious. And oh, today I'm feeling different. I'm feeling different today than I was feeling yesterday, right? And it's really starting to kind of build that muscle of awareness of our inner state, even if we don't consciously recognize that that's what we're doing, right? Whenever we're naming our emotions, there is a moment of connection with what's happening inside of our bodies, right? Um, Even if we check in and we're like, oh, nothing's there. Like I'm feeling numb today. That's still a part of my lived experience. And what I found in those spaces and, and the feedback that I got from the students that I worked with was that it helped them to feel more connected to other people. You know, there were a lot of other things that I did um, to build those relationships as well, but just that daily check-in of like scale of one to 10, how you doing and and what emotions are present for you, you know? And I find that, you know, now that I'm moving into more of my work has to do with working with people who work with youth or, you know people who work with people, facilitators and educators, and just realizing and finding how much, you know, we really, if we're showing up to do this work around relationships and emotions with the people we work with, we also have to do that work ourselves, right? So if I, as an educator, um, can do that check-in with myself at the beginning of the day to maybe use the ideas in this book to really hone into that emotional granularity. That's the term that she uses Mm -hmm. to say like, wow, I'm feeling like really frustrated and stressed today. I'm not quite overwhelmed. I'm not totally like at that level, but I, I'm I'm feeling some stress and and some you know, and that shifts the way that then I step into a space with the students that I work with, right, or the groups that I work with. And there's an awareness of my nervous system state. And what we know about our nervous systems is is that emotional contagion and those mirror neurons, right? That we are regulating and dysregulating with each other all the time, right? And I kind of think about facilitators and educators being like the keystone kind of nervous system, right? They're the Mm -hmm. one that everyone else in the group is kind of playing off of, right? And so, you know, my ability to stay regulated amidst all of the stressors in my life and in the world and, you know, the way that my students are showing up, like that is maybe the hardest and most important thing about that role, right? Let alone if then I'm I'm trying to teach my students those things, sure. right? Like I of, sure. often say, like you you know you wouldn't expect a somebody to teach math if they didn't know how to you know do math. <laughs> and yeah. yet, a lot of times there's this expectation now that you know teachers are expected to teach social emotional skills. But at what point have we been given the space to do that work? Because again, we live in a culture where this level of nuance and even just naming and acknowledging that we have big feelings Mm -hmm. (laughs) or even Mm -hmm. small feelings is, is still like kind of on, on the edges of what's the norm. 
You know, I think we're moving in that direction. And I I still think we have a long way to go, um, just especially in terms of um, the complexity and the nuance of it, right? Absolutely. I like that you're describing your practice of them sharing, actually sharing this with each other in the group, sharing their emotional state. Yeah. Because that is uh, the definition of cognitive empathy is like recognizing the emotion states in others. So you're seeing a model every day of someone saying like, oh, I'm feeling this. And you can look at them and see and, you know, take in their presence and be like, okay, that's what for this person, you know, and obviously things, you know, if three different people said they're feeling frustrated or whatever, that can come across many different ways, but like you're building your cognitive empathy vocabulary, you know, like a, to be able to recognize emotions in others. Cause I think that is a huge piece of compassion and compassionate living and learning yes. is that I can understand that someone has emotions that are different than me. And I can mm-hmm. maybe have an idea of what that emotion means because they put a word to it. Now I can like understand them even better and understand Absolutely. how we're act, how to act and interact and how to yeah, do things together more effectively, you know, or yeah. productively or more compassionately, any of those ways. Absolutely. And, you know, I appreciate that, you know, she gets in one of my favorite sections in this book is her explorations of um, that kind of family of compassion, empathy, pity, sympathy, right? Like all, all of those kind of tricky ways that we interact with other people and other people's pain and other people's emotions. And she talks about how the, a question that she receives quite often is, well, how can I have empathy for someone if I've never experienced what they've experienced, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I think that that's like especially potent right now in the time that we're in. Whenever it is, you know, (laughs) people are listening to this. I can say this is especially potent right now because there's so much suffering in the world. And often this question of like, what do I, what do I do with that, with the amount of suffering in the world? And, and can I have empathy for someone across the world who's having a very different experience than one that I've ever had, you know, and she talks about how empathy isn't about having the same experience. It's about being able to connect to the emotion underneath. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think sometimes we oversimplify emotions, but I think sometimes we also make them more complicated than they need to be that Mm -hmm. like, yeah, fear, right. Feelings of unsafety, um, Mm -hmm. feelings of frustration or disappointment, right. Like I, I can connect, if I can connect to the place inside of me that has experienced the emotion that I think that you might be feeling, then there's that emotional resonance, right. Um, And, you know, she really distinguishes that compassion, you know, I kind of think about how empathy is like a precursor to compassion. It's, it's an important ingredient, Mm -hmm. but if we start and end at empathy, especially if it's just affective empathy, just feeling the big feels of other Mm -hmm. people, um, then that's where we can really kind of spiral into the despair and the overwhelm and, you know, all of that, because we're just feeling (laughs) Yeah. feeling at all. Yeah, but yeah. then what do we do with that? Right. How do, how do we transform that into compassion? And with compassion, there's, there's an element of, of action. Yes. And I, I think that compassion something requires action. That's like one of our, quotes. exactly. Like, yeah. That's, that's it. Right. And I think that, um, you know, let me just flip to that place right there. I'll just read the definition. Mm-hmm. Um, compa- compassion is the daily practice of recognizing and accepting our shared humanity so that we treat ourselves and others with loving kindness and we take action in the face of suffering. I just, I'm like, mic drop. She does it again with the definition that's just like so spot on. But she, an important distinction that she makes that I think is really important is that like, that the quote unquote action we're talking about with compassion doesn't mean fixing it. 
Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean hustling in there and being like, well, I'm going to take action and I'm going to, you know, make it all better. solve it all. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, sometimes it looks like actual action, you know, maybe it's calling my congressperson and asking for something to, to happen so mm-hmm. that things stop happening. And sometimes if, especially if it's with, you know, my partner or my child or somebody that I'm close to, the action is just being with them mm-hmm. in the pain and suffering that they're experiencing, right? Reflecting that back to them and just like sitting with it. And there's that, you know, that reflects back to her conversation about vulnerability and how our capacity to be with the discomfort of our vulnerability is really an extension of, you know, our ability to, to be compassionate with other people, right? Because if I can't sit with my own discomfort, around your pain and mm-hmm, your suffering, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I'm going to go toward things like pity or compa- or pity or sympathy, or I'm going to go down the spiral of empathy and then avoid. Right? Yeah, like, yeah. There's, Get there's too much. so many things. Yeah. yeah. She did make this, the beautiful empathy, sympathy video, the little cartoon video yes. that's out there. It's so good. And uh, she mentioned this book, that empathy is a tool of compassion and that yes. empathy comes out as the activity of sitting and being in the space with a person without, without moving to fix it or minimize it. And I think there's like, we want to back to this sort of, we become uncomfortable when people are uncomfortable. We, we see people are, are in a state of being uncomfortable in some way. They're sad, they're hurt, they're, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever it is. We want to be act with compassion toward them. And I totally agree. Many times it's like, well, how can I fix it? How can I take away your pain? How can I lighten the mood? How can I, you know, whatever in the cartoon there, you know, this gazelle looks down, like, Hey, do you want a sandwich? You know, like Uh that's like my favorite response to any moment that requires compassion is just like offer a sandwich, uh, is, you know, a way to minimize and distract and and to make ourselves feel better in that space. Make ourselves feel better. Yeah. And I think you just said it spot on. Like if we can't sit with those, that discomfort within ourselves, it's going to be a lot harder to sit with that discomfort in that space of discomfort with someone else, when that is really what will help them the most, perhaps in that situation. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, our capacity to sit with our own discomfort in those spaces requires a skill that many of us don't even know is an option, which is self-compassion. Oh, right. Right. Right? Yeah. I mean, and that's like a rabbit hole that, you know, we haven't even begun (laughs) to, to go down. Right. Because if, if I'm deflecting or deferring or offering sandwiches because I'm feeling uncomfortable, how do I interact with my own discomfort in that moment? Do I push it aside? Do I offer myself sandwiches, right? Like how I respond to myself in those moments is often a direct reflection of how the capacity I have to show up with other people. And so, you know, she talks about and refers a lot to, to Kristen Neff's work. And yes. after reading about that in The Gifts of Imperfection, I dug into to Kristen Neff's work and it has taken me in so many like really beautiful, really hard directions. Um, but I think what I've, what I've realized in my own journey is that if I'm feeling dysregulated around someone else's behavior and I'm like admonishing myself to be more compassionate and it feels like an uphill battle to be compassionate, what I need in that moment is self-compassion, mm. right? Like I, I need to recognize and acknowledge oh, like, this is hard. I'm having a really hard time with this. Right. And sometimes we don't feel we're deserving of that or can't access it in the moment. Right. If we're reading something on the news, that's really intense and overwhelming and is inspiring a lot of that empathy that creates a lot of that discomfort in that moment, I can, 
you know, feel like I'm spurred to action and move, you know, to, to do something, I can, you know, shut my computer and just deflect and, you know, go right. watch a movie instead. And, or I could also in that moment, just take a breath and acknowledge this is really hard. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't minimize the suffering that I'm reading about or seeing. It actually allows me to meet the moment with more awareness, more regulation, more skillfulness, as opposed to just acting from that super dysregulated place. Right. Absolutely. And I think that that's, that's the, that's an equation that we get wrong a lot of times culturally in, in the narratives around selfishness and um, worthiness and just the, you know, zero sum mm-hmm. game of empathy and compassion. And, if, and uh, just to be super clear, Kristen Neff, uh, her stuff comes is self-compassion. Like that's like her self-compassion, mm-hmm. like her, I don't know if she coined that phrase or did the research into it or basically explored that idea. And she's out there and has, does a lot of great work around self-compassion, which is, yeah, how we act and treat ourselves and how we are mm-hmm. able to be present in that way. I think it, yeah, it is interesting because I think there's also fear for many people like, oh, I want to respond in the right way. Like the perfectionist yes. vibe comes in yep. like, oh, something's, this person's hurting. The situation is stressful. I don't want to say res- the wrong thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say the wrong thing. This person is grieving, you know, whatever it is. There's so many layers of like, well, how do I show up for them? How am I present for them? I don't want to do it wrong. You know, like that Mm -hmm. piece and to be self-compassionate with ourselves around our fear of doing it wrong or whatever, you know, those fears are, I think are very real for many people and still to progress through and take compassionate action anyway. Yeah. And to know that we are going to do it wrong oftentimes, right? And that that we can't let our fear of doing it wrong get in the way of doing something, Right. And I, you know, I think that there's that perfection in it. And then there's also some of that paralysis with, you know, living in a world in a culture where, you know, some of that fear being called out or being mm-hmm. told that we not only did it wrong, but that we really hurt hurt someone or that we're a terrible person you made it worse. or yeah. you made it worse. Right. And and that can be, you know, just add to our own desire to not do things wrong and be right. even more paralyzing. Absolutely. Uh yeah. It's tough to be compassionate. It's tough to be self-compassionate. Tough, I think you, it's tough to be human. <laughs> yeah, all these things. Yeah. That's why I think this this is unique niche that this book fills in. Like mm-hmm. it doesn't. I mean, nowhere does it say like, "Hey, it's hard to be human." Here's like some alternatives, like be emotional. But I think the yeah. the idea that we can flip through an atlas and really uh, orient ourselves mm-hmm. at the like you were saying, yeah, she uses the word granular, like at the granular level of how we are, where we are situated emotionally within a landscape of interactions with people helps us. I think once we're oriented, then you know where to go. And once you know where to do, exactly. I've like spent a lot of time with like actual physical maps actually out in the mm-hmm. world where you don't know where you're going. And as soon as you can orient yourself, things make sense, things fall into place. Yeah. And then you can start moving. If you don't know where you are and you have a map, it is not very helpful. <laughs> you were not. It's very helpful. Yeah, it's absolutely. Not, not, you're just carrying around some weird weight, you know, with you. It's not very useful for you. And so I think mm-hmm. this book really serves that purpose of helping us orient ourselves within that uh, interpersonal, human, emotional landscape. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. It was interesting. It's a fun read. She's a great writer, and it was interesting. So I think I think this is mind. That was like sort of a mind shift for me while reading it, where I'm like, oh yeah, this is how I'm. This is where I'm located. This is where I'm at. Yeah. You know, in mm-hmm. a emotional sense way. Absolutely. 
any yeah, final thoughts fantastic. on this very cool book? Highlights, other things that you must say before we wrap this up, because this has been very fun talking with you. Yeah, likewise. I mean, so many things. So many things are so good. Um, I think the only other thing um, that really, it's not the only other thing, but something that stood out to me that I think is really important and worth mentioning is um, anger, right? Mm-hmm. Anger as mm-hmm. a, a secondary emotion. And she's got a really beautiful graphic um, from Wholehearted School Counseling that it really kind of illustrates behind anger might be. And there's all of these words like shame and jealousy and fear and anxiety. And I think anger is such a intense and powerful emotion that can get channeled in really beautiful and productive and transformative ways. And also can't, can also not be channeled right. in those ways. Right. right. And I, again, I think our, our culture has a really complicated relationship with anger. I mean, we can talk about gender and race and, you know, all of the different ways that anger privilege kind of exists in the world. Um, but I, I've just found that concept of, you know, anger as a secondary emotion and, and, and the reflection and introspection of really taking the time, you know, it's like using that map metaphor, really taking the time to sit down and look at what is behind this? What am I feeling that is a more vulnerable emotion that I don't want to let myself feel? And how is this getting off-gassed onto the, the people around me? Um, and oversimplified fundamentally. It useful. Like, oh, how is yeah. it getting just watered, not watered down, but like oversimplified that anger, I mean, she did this is famous for this quote of like when she surveyed all the people when and asked them our emotional states, like 85% of the time they would say happy, sad, or angry. Like those happy, are sad, like angry, yep. the emotional states that people claimed to have. And she's like, there's a lot more to it, people. And then, you know, later, here's this whole book. Here's a lot more to it. But uh, anger is almost a cop-out that we are like, oh, yeah. I'm just angry because this and that, blah, 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 blah. Wouldn't you be angry too? Like, sure, whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, yep. And there's more to it. Like it is, yeah. there's some something else happening there that we're not accepting or addressing or wanting to see or mm-hmm. wanting to feel fundamentally. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because often it's super vulnerable to feel those things, right? Yeah. And I mean, she says in that section too, that um, 91% of emotion experts disagree with her. They think the anger and say the anger is a primary emotion. And I, I, I love it. She says that in here because it also invites the nuance of this conversation as a conversation, right? And that part of science and why this really is a science is that, um, you know, testing these ideas and then applying them to the real world and being willing to be wrong and to have different Mm -hmm. people saying different things and um, that there's, there's no one right answer. Again, yes, academia, and we're all just trying to map the train and all yeah. the maps look, look different. Right. right but it's right. at the end of the day, it comes down to what's, what's most helpful or useful for you as an individual, regardless of what the research says about it or this person or that sure, person, sure. how does it land in your own body? Right. How does yep. it make you feel? And that to me is really the, the best indicator of a concept's usefulness. I think I would go out on a limb and say that happy is also a secondary emotion in that same vein, that it's like a very watered down, very like broad swipe of like, I'm happy. You're like, tell me more. You know, it's like when you ask someone there, how are you doing? They're fine. Like, tell me what is fine. You know, like, like, 
I don't know that there's been as much debate, obviously, about happy versus, you know, anger is a secondary emotion. But I think we do, we like to water it down a lot because mm-hmm. we're not, we don't, we're not used to engaging in that vulnerability. We're not quite self-compassionate enough to, mm-hmm. like, actually acknowledge our own emotional state at sometimes. I think, I think we limit what we want to share, obviously, is feelings of, like, we limit our vulnerability for good and bad reasons out there in the world. But we also limit our access to ourself in, in those mm-hmm. same ways by saying, I would say happy, sad, or angry. Like maybe all three of those are just such, you know, like the big picture postcard that you're mm-hmm. like, here it is. And you're like, well, great. It's a smiley face or it's a crying face or it's a mad face. Like that's it. Yeah. Like there's so much more out there. There's so much more yeah. in there, I guess, is really the point. Yeah. I mean, to your point earlier of like anger being a cop out, I think sometimes happiness is also a cop out, right? You oftentimes ask, you know, in my experience, asking young people, what is it that you want? What what are you moving toward? Oh, I just want to be happy, right? Where we say that to our kids, I just want you to be happy. Mm-hmm, it's like, that's mm-hmm. a lot of pressure. Like, so mm-hmm. It's like not as simple as we, we think it is, but it's also, yeah, like you said, what do you, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. What does that even mean? Because when we have the experience, like the emotional experience of joy, you know, she talks in yeah. here, I think, and, and in other places about how oftentimes joy is the most vulnerable emotion, right? Mm-hmm. And so is happiness equated to joy in our minds? Or is that does that vulnerability kind of, you know, muddy the waters a little bit? Sure. So, I mean, these are the levels of nuance that I this is the next nerd book. out on forever. Exactly. And I know there are books out there about happiness versus being satisfied versus being mm-hmm. comfortable versus being, you know, like blah blah yep. blah. Like all those there's a there's Pursuit a body of, of work out there. And, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Uh, mm-hmm. Absolutely. But to wrap up Brene Brown today, it's been great talking with you about this. Any last words of wisdom that you thought Brene had to share with us or we can wrap this blabber fest up? I think that I could keep blabbering. Me so too. we'll just we'll, we'll put a we'll put a fine point on on <laughs> that and say it to be continued. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Joe, for talking with me about this amazing book today. It's been awesome. Thanks for inviting me. It's been really fun chatting with you as usual. Thanks. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Book Supplied Podcast. I hope you enjoyed getting to know a new book and learning how to apply its ideas to make your work, sport, or life a little bit more awesome. For more leadership education related content, including conflict management checklists, invitations to a fun free lunch that happens monthly, upcoming classes, webinars, and mastermind groups, please head over to wslleadership.com. Thanks and have a great day.